It's all computers these days. Yeah, don't don't make me don't make me make uh, use an orange to to demonstrate how the Earth is in fact round because I'll do it. No, that would demonstrate how an orange is round. <laughs> you don't even know how this stuff works, do you? I know that that's true. <laughs> I I have to give up the uh, the the idea that you can that you can model things in other things in order to demonstrate larger principles. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Paletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. Hey, Nathan, what are we talking about this time on the Design Games Podcast? Today, we're talking about what we get out of playing games, and also mechanical reward cycles. I don't know if I do. I used to have a bottle opener that had a dapper otter on it. Oh, a dapper otter. Yeah, it was an otter with a monocle and a like a bowler hat and mm-hmm. a, a plaid vest and a necktie. Yeah. Dapper otter. I'm with you. Yeah. And uh, uh, I carried him around. He was a keychain bottle opener, and I carried him around everywhere, and he began to unpeel and crack and break, but he's darling. But if should you ever see one of these dapper otter or monocled tiger or whatever the animals are, a uh, series of, of bottle openers, I recommend them for their clever opener-ness. I would just keep it in the kitchen because carrying around in my pocket, I unfortunately did damage to it. Is that a clever opener? I thought that was a great story. You are very kind. <laughs> and now you see what's happened, Nathan, is that by saying that, I'm going to tell you more stories about bottle openers because I was rewarded for telling you one of them. One could, in fact, say that we have uh, discovered a reward cycle of our conversation. I would say that we've invented one. There's a lot of, uh, uh, in psychology, we hear a lot about, I think, the discovery of reward cycles. But the thing about game design is that we have to invent them because what we're rewarded, the behavior that we're rewarding might pre-exist, but the way in which we reward it is almost always an invention of the game, right? Hey, we made a neat sound effect that'll make you happy that you found this gem in this fictional landscape. Well, we had to invent the gem, the fictional landscape, and the sound. The only thing we didn't invent was the idea of wanting to point at a thing that you see. <laughs> That's the human thing that we rewarded. This actually is, is a way of phrasing uh, something that I wanted to bring up, which is that there's a difference between a reward system and reward cycles. Mm-hmm. And the reward system in your game, like like the reward that you get out of playing, right? That's the actual like satisfaction, joy, meaning, whatever experience you have that makes you go, oh, I want to play that again. Right. Right. Or, oh, I'm really glad I played that. And that can be created at all different levels of the game from I like playing with these people and that's where the actual reward is and I kind of don't care as much about the mechanics or whatever mm-hmm. to the, as a designer, I want you, the game, I, I've said that the game is about this and I've incentivized these behaviors inside the game and so here's this mechanical process that backs up those, that actually provides those incentives and then through going through that process, you, you're like, oh, so that's what the game wants me to do. That's how I'm successful. That's how I'm most able to fulfill the promise of this character mm-hmm. or whatever. So the actual inventions, as you say, are the are the reward cycles that I think we we're interested in, in talking about because they can be multiple and various and nested and right occur at different different points in time, but they're all in the service of trying to either create or support like the overall system of reward that you get just for playing the game. Right. For me, it was clarifying to think of to separate a little bit the or 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 I guess to refine the word system into a a, me- a mechanism something that implies that it is one little component, mm. right? So the reward mechanism is the find the gem, hear the found a gem sound, and if that sound is pleasing, you go, oh good, I found a gem, right? That's technically right there is a system is a mechanism, mm. but it has no purpose yet because it's not it's been excised from its because why do I want gems? Right. So it's been excised from its cycle. 
from its larger system, mm-hmm. right? So to me, there's, I mean, you can almost like there's the, there's a mechanism which is part of that system. And then that system can be part of a cycle. If you want to look at it kind of in this three sets of tiers. And the way I would think of it is very often reward cycles I see when they're depicted in the literature for whatever value of the literature we mean are done as like a flow chart. So if you picture a triangle with three circles and one leads to the next leads to the next and they just go in a little loop, that's the cycle. And the system is the arrows if you will. It's why you move or how you move from one to the other. Mm. And each individual circle is a mechanism. Sure. And I just bring that up because I'm going to, I know I'm going to want to differentiate at some point in this conversation, or I suspect I will, between mechanism and, and between the system and something, a part of the system. Mm-hmm. And the reason for, for that in part is because when we think about the invention, even f- skipping the fact that almost every step of this is invented, which is to say, Maybe invented by the game, maybe invented by the culture in which the game is played, maybe invented by the history of previous games. But like, if the experience point is something that, that I want, I can almost tell somebody, you'll get experience points if you do this. And they'll say, great, I'll do it. I may not yet know what experience points are for. I just know that experience points are are, are, are like never bad for me. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. And so some of that notion is um, that not every game is, is inventing every part of its reward cycle. Imagine somebody sitting on an Xbox controller attached to an Xbox that is not on. Why push those buttons. Why move the stick around, right? Mm-hmm. Or in a game in which, oh, well, you don't use the, we don't use the triggers in this game. Okay, but I want to pull the triggers. Well, you're not going, they don't do anything in this game. Mm-hmm. There are very obvious places to hang rewards and to say, in a game, if you can hold the X button for 10 seconds, you will get this, at this at, in front of these particular pixels, you will get this prize. In video games, it's very easy to chart reward cycles, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's much more often talked about in video game design, because there are literally a fixed number of inputs. And then when we get to tabletop design of any ilk, of analog design of all sorts, but especially RPGs, where the number of inputs is staggeringly large, possibly bordering on, on infinite, unlimited only by the imagination of the participants, I think the ephemeralness or the, the, the imaginative aspect, the invented aspect of the reward cycle is sometimes so clear. Right that it feels like it actually has no teeth. And I think that's, yeah. that's I, and I think that's untrue. I think they absolutely have teeth. It's just that at any time, a player can choose to excise themselves from the reward cycle and say, I no mm. longer care about your hit points and your experience points. And I no longer care if this monster lives or dies. Yeah, that's actually uh, a tension that I think is very real and is one of those is always going to have to be dealt with. At some level, you need player buy-in in order for your reward mechanisms to produce that larger level sense of reward right. that I was talking about earlier. And that can come in from the the sitting down and like, I'm going to play this game or it could, it can kind of sneak in, right? Where you have this experience of like suddenly caring about something and you realize it's because you've been working, the mechanics have pushed you into that place and you're like, oh, I didn't care about this, but now I do. Right. And similarly, a reward system can push you out of being invested. I would argue generally if it's not very well integrated into the rest of the, the game experience. The, that's that toothless feeling mm-hmm. that you've identified, which is which I think a lot of us have felt. I mean, I felt it playing games and been like, oh, so I care about this stuff, and then here's here's the mechanical reward systems that I can see, and I see like, oh, I get these points for doing this, and then I spend them to do this, and it gives me this bonus to do this, right? And I can go through that cycle all I want, and it's a cycle over drawing a circle in the air over here, and then the stuff I care about is in a circle in the air over here, and there's no. Venn diagram that has bought, brought them together. Right, it's just two separate circles. Right. Yeah. And I think ideally, and the kind of game that I like to I design and that I like to 
try and achieve with my designer is where that that's a very close where that overlap gets much closer where the stuff that you care about and the actual mechanical reward stuff hook into each other right and actually in some cases like maybe don't make sense without each other and that's where you start to talk about when do the mechanics influence the fiction fiction influences mechanics and all that that business there are two big directions the fiction mechanics relationship and the notion of the buy-in and the choice of how one participates with the system or what the system, what a mechanical system does to encourage or discourage player investment or player emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to start with the question because I think I can come back to the other one, but just so you know, what I'm going to come back to is the fiction mechanics relationship later. Mm-hmm. The question I have is, do you think this can be used for ill? Is there such a thing as a reward as a reward mechanic that is bad? Not just bad of being a reward mechanic, but that is a reward mechanic that is in the wrong game, right? Mm-hmm. In which you go, suddenly everybody just cares about how many bullets they have. That's not what the game's about, right? Or something like that. Yeah, well, you can have your reward, your a, a, a completely functional, clever, well-designed reward mechanic that is not rewarding the behaviors that you want people to, to have in your game, mm-hmm. right? Right. I would generally call that a bad one for that game right or or a or a failure of game design not because it doesn't work but because it's it's been misconceived it's kind of like putting the wrong alternator in a car or putting a putting a fuel pump in an electric Mm -hmm. car or something right you're like it's perfectly good fuel pump it has it literally it is literally just going to damage this car (laughs) or whatever right so yeah bad design i got you um so the because the question i have is is like Games that reward, for example, I have no problem with games that say fight monsters, get treasure. I have a ton of fun with those games. But it is absolutely possible where I catch myself saying, less so in tabletop games, but it can happen in tabletop games. It happens in board games. It happens in board games. But where I say, how many goblins did we just see die and not give half a damn about? Mm -hmm. And maybe we shouldn't because they're goblins and who knows what the cosmologies in this universe or whatever. But my point is that, well, it's like Nathan Drake in the Uncharted games, right? Where it's like, so Nathan Drake's on this adventure to keep people from finding ancient treasures that will destroy humanity or whatever. But you, you killed 350 people with small arms to get here. Mm-hmm. Are we going to talk about that? And the answer is no, because again, that's the difference between what's in the text and what isn't. And it's because of the fact that the game has a reward cycle, has multiple reward cycles. And in order to keep that cycle going, there needs to be a lot of fights, fist fights or, or gun fights or punching guys off cliffs or whatever it is. But so it creates a system in which on the one hand, we, the players want very badly to shoot people in the head because it makes fights happen faster. We get more points for headshots. And that is happening in tandem to the narrative and the, the, the fiction in the mechanics but not plugging directly into them it is in that i can't get ahead unless i can kill the 30 people on this boat and the faster i do that the faster i get back to the story right so the fiction is playing into a reward cycle in a way especially if you're if you're like me and i tend to play those games largely as a tourist which is i want to see not just the story because i can get those on youtube but i want to be able to just explore the environments and the fights are not why i'm there Hmm. i mean i enjoy them some but there are a lot more of them than i enjoy I'm not conversant enough in video games to remember the the designer's name or the game in question, but there's a, a what if there. Oh, we, what if you could, could skip, skip the combat? Yeah, what if that was it was for the, it was for Bioware games. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's like you can skip talking to just do the fights. Like, what if you could just skip the combat so you can just do the other stuff? Right. And there was such pushback. Right. Right, which is which is largely a cultural pushback. Yeah, it's not that the game, it's not games can't function that way. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm where where I'm going, which is that different games can say different things, or the same game can say different things in different instances by the reward cycles that are being right. accessed by the players. If you have the same game and you push X to skip the talking, so you can just get to the fighting, and there's the equal ability to push Y to skip the fighting just to get back to the tourism, then those are two different game experiences. 
being kind of like modeled by those two different uh, shortcuts through the reward cycle. May the reward system in that sense is more about talking or if you go to this number of locations, that's how you get more points or whatever the Right, right. There's, the yeah, there are lots is. of options that suddenly become available, unexplored options, if you can skip combats the way you can skip cutscenes. Right. Which both as a... Uh, in a, the cultural space of games and in the kind of design, I don't know what the word is, I almost said heritage, but I guess what I mean is momentum, trajectory, but mm-hmm. not in a sense of we aimed games to specifically do this one thing. It's the fact that there's no there's no single visionary who strives the, the course in which games will be made. There are lots of circles and lots of different groups and lots of different visions and policies and things happening at the various AAA places and all sorts of indie designers, paper and analog and, and digital alike, but that are contributing to the, the, the direction in which games as a whole kind of go. But one of them that they're not really going in in digital is that dynamic of the macro reward cycle in which you say, I am willing to expend this number of resources to skip a fight that would have cost me probably about that many resources if I was really good at it, I could have saved some or whatever, so that I can get to the next dialogue bit because the part of this game that I care about is how this character moves through the Paragon or Renegade path or whatever it is in this game, how my character defines as a person through the conversations that they make, who they choose to ally with, who I bring on the adventure. And the thing that's interesting is the ability to skip cutscenes is a very overt opt-out on the player's part from what can be part of the reward cycle if if you're like me and seeing uh, Nolan North as Nathan Drake play scenes with people and explore exotic locales and whatever is part of my reward cycle. Mm-hmm. I want to see where this is going. But if I decide that it's not part of my reward cycle, I can hold X to skip the cutscene. If I'm, but I mean, if I'm different mm-hmm. from me and I say, I want to skip the combats entirely, I want to hold X to spend 50 bullets and just not have to see the combat or not have to spend, or just because I'm on a play, replay through or because I've just this one combat, I've tried it, tried it five times and I'm just getting sick of it. And I've only got 10 more minutes before I've got to go to class or whatever it is. And I say, can I skip that so I can, so I can opt out of that part of the reward cycle, mm-hmm. right? On paper, that's not at all unreasonable. And I think in practice, it's not at all unreasonable, but it's odd because there's no precedent for it yet, mm. because it's extremely difficult to establish that precedent when games are moving as fast as they're moving in the direction that they're moving, which is why so often, I think, which is, I mean, the thing, and I think this is, this is apt, this is topical, because reward cycles can be cultural. Reward cycles, oh, yeah. I, I, there's so many reward cycles that are baked into genre or baked into medium or mm. baked into the genre that the game is or the genre that the game purports to be. An epic fantasy RPG is in both the RPG genre and the epic fantasy genre. It can inherit things from the epic fantasy genre that are like, well, the reward cycle is that we will save the kingdom. That's not necessarily what this RPG is about. One thing I love about tabletop design is that that you can iterate so fast yeah. right on on a concept um and go through these cultural moments i think a little faster yeah. than than digital games tend to and, and you can more cheaply explore right new stuff yeah well so i'm wondering i'm sure if i really thought about this i'd find something but the idea of opting in to mm-hmm. reward cycles is really interesting and one that i'm not sure i've seen expressed as something that's not a subset of opting into a certain narrative path for a character or for a for a game or I would argue that in some cases the character class is is an opt into a particular reward system, yeah. but but I think it, I think it's but it, I think the the only shining example is the I bought the game example because I paid money for this I'm opting in and that's yeah. the thing is that the, the opt in is as product not necessarily to is as mm. system because that was the, that's the number one argument that I would see when people would say when I would say I want because I, I we posted about this at Game Playwright once which was I want to be able to skip certain combats and I would I'd be willing to pay resources in game to do that so i could play bioware games more times than i can i love them but i often can't play i couldn't play the mass effect games fast enough because they're huge games but i wanted to try out alternate ways right and so mass effect's a great example and what i was told was then play something else 
Right. And it's like, but I have this game and I like it. And I like everything about it except for these three fights. <laughs> right. And unlike in a tabletop game, you can't just decide not to do those or just do a hack, right? Like right. The, the, the platform prevents you from doing that kind of thing unless you find a mod or... Or yeah, arguably it's... it's, it's, it's the, there are, we're specifically saying people with only the following skill sets can, can skip this combat. People who are coders, people who are coders with, a, with, with the software necessary to mod Mass Effect, and people whose hand-eye coordination and time to practice and perfect this game are both so high mm. that they can get through this fight to do the secret level or whatever it is. And that's part of the question, right? Is that if in a reward system or any kind of reward cycle, you are saying only players who can do XYZ, all three XYZ, will get to this point. And if they do it 10 times, because it makes it a cycle. The difference between a bad or a reward cycle that is very misshapen and a gate is often nothing. They're often the same thing. Right? If it's a reward cycle, which is I can't get the reward, ergo I cannot get enough of this sure, yeah, magic yeah. shiny coin to buy the sword that I need to get to the next dungeon level, mm -hmm. then now that has become a gate, not a reward cycle. Mm -hmm. It is that I, I'm, not, I'm not skilled enough, whether it's hand-eye coordination or I can't roll a damn 12 or whatever it is. I can't get my feet spot the right way or I'm caring about something other than what the game is mm -hmm. asking me to care about. A reward cycle that doesn't work does become a, a gatekeeping mechanism. Gates are perfectly viable mechanisms in games to say, don't explore this dungeon until you're level 10. Mm -hmm. But any system that accidentally becomes another system is sure. usually a badly designed system. <laughs> yeah, like you, you kind of want, want there to be some kind of obviousness. Like, yeah, a locked door should be clearly locked and should tell you that you need the blue key to open it. Sure. As opposed to being like, oh, is that, I didn't even realize it was a door. Right. I mean, I guess if there's like a puzzle game or something, right? Yeah. But that's a different. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very, different. that's a very obtuse example, but yeah. Mm. yeah. Myopic, I should say. I yeah. I think I'm thinking more, more along the lines of talking about, you know, you can only go into a certain dungeon once your characters are a certain level. That's kind of combining this macro reward of we want to go into that dungeon. Right. With this gatekeeping threshold of yeah. you have to be this level. And then there's a different reward cycle for getting the experience points to get to that level. And so that's pretty well telegraphed. It'd be worth noting that there, that what happens if I want to go into a level 10 dungeon and I'm level 9? Mm. If the answer is you just can't, in some games that's fine. It depends on the game. Yeah, right? there's a magical field that knows what level you are. Right, right. Whatever, yeah. Um, but also, sometimes you want to be like, no, I want to take on a different risk to reward ratio, and I want to go in there at level 9 and see if I can do it, damn it. Right. And know, it's like, games, that's you're fine. probably going to die. It's like, I'm, I'm willing to take that chance. All right. And then you can game on, and right. and that's a different that's a different kind of game for that player at that point than someone who was at level 10. Or and that goes in, in, into the fiction question I was going to ask. Because mm -hmm. to me, one of the questions is that if the reward cycle is every story, we get more XP. Every session, we get more XP. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, right? And you have a scenario that's about if we don't defuse this bomb, everybody will die then the, the fiction is getting in the way of the reward cycle, which usually it's the other way around, where the reward cycles require a certain amount of suspension and disbelief where you say, in, in this sure. universe, on a Wednesday, a wizard is 8th level. On, a, on that following Thursday, he's ninth level, and now he can do stuff he couldn't do before, right? Or whatever, right? We use the fiction to smooth that over. But the other way around is that I go, okay, so you're telling me that if I can't roll a 10 or higher, we're just going to stop playing this game. That's where the fiction is asking you to believe something, and you're like, I, but I, as the player, have to approach it, I have to back into that idea compared to how it usually works, because I, I say, so you're telling me seriously that if that there's a 50-50 chance in this die that we just that the campaign's over mm -hmm. with all the storylines we got going, all the characters we have happening, all the XP and stuff. I don't buy it. And so the 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 fictional stakes or the fictional reward cycle, like no, because we get XP every story, 
And if this story ends everything, then all the XP we got to this point, all the previous iterations of the cycle were useless because we never got to the point where we could spend XP or whatever it is. So in other words, the existence of the reward cycle can telegraph things that the fiction could ask you to ignore when you as a player could say, but I know that's not how this works because I have game knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think the pretty common variety of, I think for fourth edition where it's just like, level up every three encounters or seven encounters or whatever. That was a dial, yeah. Yeah, there's a dial you could do, but instead of doing like XP per monster, it's just like as soon as you've had a certain number of encounters, level up. That's kind of an interesting way of creating a new dynamic, right? Because now instead of being in a fight and being like, all right, if we kill this dragon, that's all this XP, that's great, versus we are in an encounter with this dragon, but we could also be in an encounter with the Kobold King or with the Mermen right. or whatever. That's a place where, as a player, you can be taking a different view of what your character is going to do, what resources you're willing to expend, um, and all that stuff, because it's a little more predictable, right? You can kind of do the math and be like, oh, I need this many dailies and this many whatevers right. to get through this many encounters to gain the next level. Right. As opposed to maybe taking each one as its own fictional piece and, and being like, okay, how do we get past this? Knowing that it's a bolt holder versus mm-hmm. knowing that it's a dragon. Or oh, sure, sure. No, no. I guess w- what I mean, though, is that this is a place where the reward cycle and the fiction are not completely identical, mm-hmm. right? But they are working at the same time, and I have to believe in both of them. Mm-hmm. And either one of them is a place to overattack somebody's suspension of disbelief, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Either way, either one of them can break the illusion. Yes. Well, um, and sometimes when they disagree, they break the illusion. Mm-hmm. And you also see that with uh, with a pretty common technique of like describe something that is beneficial to whatever you're doing to get a plus one to your next role. And if that's that can be implemented in a way where it's like, wait a second. So like anything I can do it, like describe anything to give myself a plus one. It's like, yeah, sure. So there's no material. There's no difference between describing an intrinsic quality of my character or an outside tool that I'm able to access or some kind of divine intervention. It's like, nope, it's all good. Just describe whatever you want. So basically, no matter what, I'm going to get a plus one to the next role. Right. Right. Why am I describing? Right. And then you get this sense of like jumping through hoops. And and for me, that's that's one experience where it starts to, to, to push the circles apart. If it's important enough for me to have these bonuses, then why am I not just getting them? Or why is there not some cost, some other cost associated with it? Or why isn't it a scarce resource or like something mm-hmm. to, to make me actually have a reason to, to link my fictional description into the mechanical reward that I'm getting for it? That's another way of uh, approaching. That's a great point. That's another way of approaching the fact that it's not a reward if you if it's automatic. Right. If you need, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it, yeah. If it if it needs to happen in order for the the game to progress, right, in order for the the cycle to to spin, and it can kind of happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Then I would call that usually a, a toothless reward cycle. For that one encounter in D&D to turn into a total party kill, for you to fail against the dragon, you have to fail at multiple things. You have to roll the dice badly several times. You have to have picked the wrong spell. You know, whatever. There's lots of stuff. Mm. So there are multiple reward cycles and multiple opportunities for your choices to be tested and rewarded over and over again in a D&D game. And then when you take that same idea to the economy, like you've got your coins turned into stars, turn into new perks, things that you can buy and jetpacks and stuff. I mean, computer games will always crush the tabletop in the ability to gather 5,000 yeah. little 
pieces of light, assemble them into a bigger pixel, and sell it. RPGs can do some of that, and in many ways started started a lot of that um, with games like D&D, where it was collect this many copper coins and then turn them into a stronghold or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And, and RPGs can do that well, but again, back to kind of cognitive process, um, remembering and bookkeeping and all of that, the computer will always crush us at that stuff. So games in which the reward cycle is when you have 5,000 of these things, that turns into this other thing. And when you have tw- 20 of those, which can be formed from any of these five different gem types or something, then that turns into this other thing. That can be extremely difficult to make fun at the tabletop or to make mm-hmm. fun for very long. Board games can do it, you know, where you're only keeping track of it for 90 minutes and you've got tokens and stuff mm-hmm. and things like that happen and whatever, it can be fun. For me, I'm often inspired by the mobile games that I'm playing and the video games that I'm playing, whatever it is. I find myself being almost misinspired <laughs> or, or, or me kind of mishandling the inspiration where I'm like, you know, I want to do that in an RPG. And a tabletop game, the answer is, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, and sometimes it's like, this is actually is not fun to do as a group right. activity at the table. Right, like, like so for example, in, in Destiny, kill 50 hive monsters. All right, I can do that. I'll, I'll sit down after dinner, I'll, do, I'll, I'll, I'll kill 50 hive monsters. What a horrific notion. I'm just going to sit down, shoot 50 creatures, and go on with my life. But I'll do that thing. I'll do it in 10 or 20 or 25 minutes, whatever it is. And then on all that is, on some level, it's, it is this ridiculous. And I, I encourage game designers to always think about this. On some level, it is I'm going to sit still and push buttons and hold control sticks at the right timing. Hold this button for three seconds, push the stick for five seconds, then left, then straight again for 25 minutes until a counter tells me that I have clicked the right trigger at the right time enough times that I can go on with my life, that I can go back to my day, right? If you zoom out of it enough, it's preposterous. Mm-hmm. And the whole notion of game design is that I don't want to zoom out of it enough. I want to, I want to go and shoot 50 hive monsters to save the planet Earth, right? On some level, that combination, well, that, that, that spectrum from the ridiculous to the sublime, it's all in there. Well, that gets back to the what is the actual reward, right? Like what right. are you actually getting out of it? Why, why what is a 20 better on a 1? Uh, but, uh, but why is a 20 better than a 1 on a d20? Just because we like big numbers. We like, we like bigger numbers. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like if your, your reward for killing 50 hive monsters in Destiny after dinner is the actual reward that you're getting out of that is not what you described with the clicking right. of the, exactly. of the yeah. things, right? Yeah. It's a... I can I, do it faster next time because I got to have Yeah, I, I'm gaining experience in the game. Like I'm gaining like uh, mastery over this one aspect of the game or I'm unlocking something that I want to see or yeah. it's just relaxing for me to do this. Right. And similarly, when we sit down at the table and play a game, you can have the group, you have the group of people where people are, are engaging at different levels, right? Someone's just there to hang out with their friends. Yeah. Someone else is there to max out their level so that they can build a stronghold. Someone else is there to extend the story of their paladin and ideally, you know, assuming a functional group dynamic and all that stuff, uh, like I, I try to do, the actual reward cycle mechanics in your game are able to, at worst, satisfy the people who care about them and not destroy the experience of people who don't. And at best, bring everyone even deeper into the shared right. fictional experience by going through those mechanical processes. And that, that in part creates, whether it's fictional or mechanical, whether it's an investment in experience points or an investment in the story or an investment in this one character, it creates that investment that makes the, the players want to, including the GM, again, I do that all the time, I mean everybody, um, that makes them want to continue to play or feel like they're getting more out of playing session by session than maybe they did in the first 10 minutes, you know, so that any given hour is more rewarding than any 10 minutes might appear to be. It's it's And this is the thing is, when I was doing some of the research on this, I was like, of course this is the same thing, but it's essentially, it's, it, on a level, it's about flow, mm-hmm. right? So cognitive flow, and it's that notion that, that it's the sweet spot between boredom and anxiety. When I am good at it, and it is satisfying to be good at it, mm-hmm. or satisfying to get good at it, 
But if it is too hard, it is not fun. And if it is too easy, it is not fun. <laughs> right. From my perspective, most digital games, especially like AAA titles, uh-huh. are too hard for me. Sure. Like they are not fun because there's just too much going on. I don't get it. I right. can't figure it out. While some tabletop experiences, especially stuff like contest games and like early playtest stuff, mm-hmm. is too simple. You kind of see it, you get it, you do it, you go through the process once or twice, and you're like, all right, I get it. That's all there is. Right. I played that. I played that. Yeah. Right. So yeah, finding that sweet spot. So as a you know, as a, as a group and as a someone bringing a game to a table or or deciding what game to play, there's a spectrum for your group of where that sweet spot is. That right. could be anywhere there. As designers, what can we what can we get out of out of this discussion to like help make decisions about the reward cycles in our games? One is accepting that there are certain kinds of players that you are not going to get. Yes. Whatever game you're making. And so you say, this it's important for me. This game is not for everybody. This game is not for everybody. This novel is not for everybody. This game world is not for everybody. Mm-hmm. But part of it is that without summarizing people is to think about behaviors, I think, right? Mm-hmm. What are the activities that should be present at the table? One of the problems that I feel like I see, and I know I do it in my own play tests, absolutely, and then I work very hard in the manuscript to fix it, but is assuming a certain baseline level of service that an RPG will provide by being an RPG. Mm-hmm. And... Sometimes it can be very tiring to repeat that over and over again in RPG after RPG after RPG to say in book after book after book, don't forget that RPGs can be satisfying because the conversation can be satisfying, because the talk about a creative space can be satisfying, because the collaboration can be satisfying, right? That in itself, a conversation in itself is not a game about, is not a role-playing game. A conversation about role-playing games is not a role-playing game. But having a dynamic where what I say and when is just as important and is obviously it's already built into our into the culture to be important but is uh, is just as important as when i push the blue button and when mm-hmm. right that's part of it is order of operations and procedure making that stuff clear in a way so that the the, the, the two big issues that, that that come up a lot uh, uh, in my experience are not assuming something is fun because it is fun for me mm-hmm. but finding out that making it fun showing why it is fun so that somebody else can get at the fun right you're, you're, you need to, on some level, deconstruct why it's yeah. fun for you and then construct right. the scaffolding to make it fun to, or to, to demonstrate that funness to someone who isn't coming to it with the same background or the same inclinations. Exactly. Another way of saying that, I guess, to me is, is, is taking something that is easy for me to do and making it achievable by somebody who is not already me yes. and, and in the same way right that for example like there are lots of stuff that I'm not that I'm inherently like I'm uh, not a great cook but I love to cook and I have no aspirations to be like a great cook but I like to do it mm-hmm. but also if I'm publishing a book of recipes right. I want to think about who that book is for mm. and I want recipes in that book that are going to be fun for somebody to try if they bought the book and then get the and then get the people to buy the book who will be happy to be trying the recipes right I want those two things to align it's I mean, this is all part of thinking about your audience and yeah. and figuring out how to talk to your audience. So part of that is accepting that there are some people who will sit down and play your game and be like, this reward system does, it doesn't work because it doesn't work Because I them. don't care about it. Either because they don't care about it, because <laughs> yeah. it's too simple for them, it's right. too obvious, or it's too complicated, there's too many moving parts and they can't get their head around why to make decisions. I think that's actually a really key thing that I usually hit in this stage where I'm trying to figure out how to get a text to where someone else can read it and, and run the game or play the game, whatever, playtesting. Right. When you're making a decision in the game, whether it's a, a character decision or a fictional positioning or a, a mechanical decision or whatever, having the ability to make a bad decision because you don't know what all the parameters are and mm-hmm. you don't have the information you need to make a principled decision is something that I try to avoid because that creates unsatisfying play 
much of the time. I know it does for me where I'm like, oh, there's all these options. I don't know what to do. But then one of them is clearly the wrong one, right? Because it, it takes me out of the reward cycle or you do need to generate a bonus, but there's these three ways to do it. And one of them, my character that I picked doesn't do it very well. Right. So I really should just do one of the other two, but I don't really realize that it's too opaque or whatever. And so I do the bad one. And then in retrospect, I'm like, oh, I could have just done another thing. I love that example, right? Because it's, the, it's a, not just the decision paralysis, mm-hmm. but it's the fact that it's a lack of awareness of what is a loaded term in RPGs, stakes, but I don't mean fictional stakes. I don't mean narrative yeah. stakes. No, I but mean, it's like, right, yeah, what, what, are the actual, what happens if I push this button? Yeah, what, why does this matter? Why does this decision yeah. matter, yeah. right? And your reward mechanisms, mm-hmm. not that they should be binary, not that here's the good, re- here's, here's the good decision and the bad decision, right. but more when I make this decision, how important is it? It could be minor, right? It can right. be uh, in the big in the big picture. Doesn't really matter. This is a, this is a good time to, to take a chance and make a mistake. See if you're right or wrong. Yeah, I do that at the table as a GM all the time. Yeah. But as a game designer, it's much harder to do. Mm. I feel like because you don't know if it's gonna if the message is gonna get through. <laughs> right. I mean, part of it is is having a clear text about that. Yeah. yeah. But part of it is also looking at the the systems and seeing where it can be more obvious. Yeah. Or seeing where the um, where this decision leads you into a smaller scale like if you roll on this stat or this set of stats or whatever that'll get you a temporary bonus but if you make a much more difficult roll on this other set of stats that'll get you a permanent bonus right it's a risk reward question yeah and it's like well what should i decide and it's like well in this game your long-term stuff matters a lot if you're playing for six sessions Mm -hmm. so maybe you should do that but if you're playing a one shot then you should just go for the temporary bonus right right and like that kind of thing where when you start looking at your the, the, the different levels at which all your mechanisms kind of interact, you can smooth the path. It's, it's about communication in that way, yeah. right? It's communicating the, not just that what you are doing is having an effect, but what, whether that effect is good or bad, <laughs> right? right? And, and yeah, what the likelihood, how that's going to change the next choice. It's like, you know, so you're at, a, you're at an intersection in a dungeon, there are three doors, which one do you open? What the hell do I know? Mm-hmm. Right, like, well, let's tell me something about these doors. Like, I want to know what's behind them. Right, so communication in that way, from adventure to mechanics to concept, everything about it is important to me. I mean, we might as well we, we should single it out here. I think this is where things like Apocalypse World and its and its descendants sing. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't know what happens if I roll plus hot. I don't know what happens if I roll plus strength, but I know what happens if I use this move that uses that stat because the stat means nothing on its own. But this move, which is dependent on that stat, tells me that if I roll this, this happens. If I roll that, that happens. Well, if I roll that, this other thing happens. So the the, the design of basic Apocalypse World, yeah. right, very clearly links certain actions to certain parts of your character. If you want to seduce or manipulate someone, that's always going to be about how hot your character is. Right. Unless right. you have made a, you know, made a character decision to take one of those alternate moves that lets it be a thing. Right. And then everyone else does hot, but you do it with sharp yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And that creates a different fictional uh, situation for you to do that move. Right. In the fiction, it looks and feels different when your character acts. Right. right. So my, so in other words, I get a special reward when I use plus sharp because my plus sharp is better. So I'm more likely to succeed and my reward is built right into the move. It's the top two outcomes of the move or whatever. But the big thing that it's doing there is it's visibility. I don't want to say transparency necessarily, but it, the visibility, the communication is clear. Mm. I know what, I know how serious it is for me to fail this role or not. I know how serious right. it is you for know, me to succeed at this role or not. Right. So I know, for example, if I said, well, I want to talk, I want to ask this guy a question. And the GM says, so are you just asking him? Do you want to just ask the question and you'll take whatever answer you get? Or do you want to get the truth out of him? Sometimes if I just ask that question, the thing is like, well, what does that involve? And that at least, there could be an interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. 
And what a lot of the Powered by the Apocalypse stuff can do is shortcut, in a good way, short, shorten the time that certain conversations take. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's also really good at telegraphing what the, you know, why decisions are important at what times. Right. Uh, across the whole thing, like at the beginning of the session, highlighting someone else's stats for experience. That is a very, like it's in the name, why you're doing it. Like, why would I choose to highlight your your hot or your sharp? Oh, you have a really bad, you know, your, your sharp's actually really low. So I'm going to highlight that because I want to see you get rewarded for, for doing stuff that I don't get to see you do all the time. Right. right. It's a very close loop and it's very clear and obvious. And it's the opportunity for the players to participate in the creation of reward cycles unique to their table. I want to see what happens when your character uses that stat, mm-hmm. not just when that stat is used. I want to see you do it as a friendly dare and it's a reward cycle, which is, and for playing along with me, you could just ignore me and just not use it this session. But right. for playing along with me, you will get XP. In addition to to reward cycles being nested inside each other and occurring over different lengths of time, they can also be different aspects of the game, right? Different parts of the game can have different reward cycles. And uh, one of my favorite versions of this is in Inspectors, where moment-to-moment play has a very tight reward cycle of like kind of your your stats kind of go down, you lose dice and you're trying to, you get stressed and you're trying to figure out what's going on. It makes it harder for you to have control over the story and whatever. But then the session-to-session reward cycle is that your franchise that you are all working for as you investigate the supernatural gains experience. Mm -hmm. So the players, or rather the, the characters, do not improve but the franchise improves. Right. But the franchise only improves in between sessions while you see the characters during each session. So those are two linked, nested, but different parts of the game that work together to, to create the even longer-term reward cycle of trying to build up your franchise to the point where you right. are no longer a bunch of hapless nitwits and you actually have some you know like professional ability to fight ghosts. That's a great example of, of showing how a reward cycle will say something and how it interacts with other reward cycles will say something. And so you want to think about what they're saying alone and together because what I always take that to be is one of the most hilarious aspects of inspectors in a great way, which is that in my experience over three or four sessions, which I think is probably the most I've ever played inspectors for mm-hmm. is three or four sessions, but is that uh, when you play it, what it turns into is it starts off with these hilarious nitwits unable to fight ghosts in and in over their heads and becomes these successful nitwits unable to fight ghosts in and over their heads, right? And that's what's hilarious about <laughs> right, it yeah. is the franchise continues to improve even though <laughs> as everybody fails upward as long as you just have the resolve to keep and I say resolve to keep playing by which I mean not because it's a hard game to play. It's a great game to play. But my experience is that the first session of Inspectors is great because everybody loves coming with a new character and bringing up new stuff. Mm-hmm. But so playing it over and over again creates this great situation where you have that dynamic that is A, funny on its face of if we got through this scenario at all, if we survived mm-hmm. uh, and, and learned anything, it's just going to let us get in over our heads again. And also because it's commentary on the Ghostbusters, the first Ghostbusters movies, in which case I think it's funny again. No, but that's a great point. Yeah, how they interact and what they, uh, how they don't necessarily have to, they're not just magnifications of each other. You know, right. a larger, sca- a larger uh, uh, cycle mm-hmm. can contain many smaller cogs that are vital to the identity of the game. I mean, sort of, again, like D&D, the leveling mechanic is, is sort of not part of the session-to-session play or the, the encounter-to-encounter play, except the XP that you get from it is. Mm-hmm. And that's a very clear conduit, right, where how does this session contribute to the long run? Well, outsmarting this beholder or this necromancer or whatever gets me experience points, which makes me able to do and, and buy and be cooler stuff in the future. In some editions of various uh, uh, XP-driven games like that, they're not necessarily very tightly connected, 
mm-hmm. right? That, that that relationship is similar. That there is a cable that runs from one to the other, and they can both be great fun. Because for tabletop role-playing games, the the moment-to-moment of play and the between-session play are such clearly different things. Some games don't need anything to happen between sessions. And some games have great between-session pastimes, leveling up your character, whatever it is. But because that's kind of the natural shape of the tabletop RPG is you're playing and then you're not, as opposed to, for example, a game where, like the game you play at the bus stop, or a mobile game, right, where where you're on one level you can kind of be seen to sort of be always playing it, or some of these games you really are, where your characters are defending themselves against monsters all the time. And then your phone will let you know you're about to lose your base. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I was, I'm in a meeting. <laughs> not now, not now. But the, the, the specific shape of the play session that you're building through your reward cycles, are, are you ever not playing? Are you playing and then not playing? Are you, do you play for 90 minutes and then go on? Do you play once a year at a convention? All these kind of things that work into it. Mm. Some of these happen by design and some of these happen as a result of the design. Yeah. <laughs> the design is always influencing, I think, where that game and how that game is played, even though it may not be visible at the outset or even at the publication exactly how it's going to manifest in the field thank you for listening to the design games podcast if you've enjoyed listening to this episode please consider supporting either myself or will at either of our respective patreons i am at patreon.com slash wordwill and nathan is at patreon.com slash nd paletta find our complete back catalog of previous episodes show notes and ephemera at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...